to the saints of Central Vineyard. Still digesting the wisdom from Gabrielle's account of Julian of Norwich, I feel honoured to write to you this week with another story from our collective past. As I process fresh revelations about the richness that is available to us as we learn from the Church of History, it occurs to me that such a revelation has long been embedded in the cultural fabric of tangata whenua, who have lived by the whakatauki, kamoa kamuri walking backwards into the future. Far from exhibiting chronological snobbery, the people of our land honour and respect stories of history for the wisdom it gives us today. For our second Been Here Done That epistle, I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will continue to speak wisdom, encouragement, and maybe a healthy challenge to you as we learn of a church whose everyday life witness was no less than revolutionary in a time of extreme pressure. It's a story about a church that went from cult to culture. I want to tell you today about the secret church of second century Rome. Not long after Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension, the disciples started responding to Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations. They took the gospel, the good news, first around the province of Judea, then further afield. As they went, those who accepted the teachings of Jesus were given a newly coined name. They became a Christian. Paul, a convert himself, was particularly apostolic, embarking on missions that saw churches established in Asia Minor, Greece, and eventually Rome itself. Peter was also on the move after Jesus' death, history reporting that he too went to Rome and was key in building the church there. Rome, it was a great city whose size, infrastructure, and grandiosity epitomized the strength and power of the Roman Empire rule. Culturally, it was the epicenter of all things Roman. The citizens embodied Roman cultural values with such potency that modern-day examples pale in comparison. In many areas, Roman values were at the opposite end of the spectrum to the teachings of Jesus. Though interestingly enough, Roman authorities had little problem with this. They thought the Christians to be an odd little cult, thinking their loss if they didn't embrace the pleasure-driven sexual ethic of the day, for example. At first, the Romans didn't even mind that the Christians worshipped Jesus. Rome was the bastion of paganism and polytheism. Adding another god to the list wasn't an issue. The problem arose when Christianity grew 
and the Christians refused to worship Roman deities, considering this idolatry. Romans called on the gods for all matters of everyday life and protection of the empire. They had, for example, Jupiter, the protector of the state, Mars, the god of war, Mercury, the god of trade, and Bacchus, the god of grapes and wine production. Sacrifice and offerings were regular and numerous to keep the gods happy. Instances like bad weather ruining crops were taken as a sign that the gods were displeased, and increasingly the Christians, due to their refusal to worship anyone but Jesus, were scapegoated as the reason for bad luck. Christians began to experience popular abuse and intellectual condemnation. Things got really serious when in 64 AD, two-thirds of the city was burned down in the Great Fire of Rome. The Emperor Nero blamed the Christians and instigated the empire's first persecution of Christians. This is where the story really takes off. This is the period where we start to see Christians dying for their faith. Their refusal to recant Jesus as Lord was a gruesome death sentence. And what an early church father Tertullian said is true. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There are dozens of learnings from the martyrs of this time, though that's not what we're majoring on today. Instead, I want to glean from how the Christians continued to live their everyday lives in this city where they were experiencing pressure that we, to be explicitly clear and blunt, have no comparison for. As a result of the persecution, the Christian church went underground, literally and figuratively. The catacombs, which were originally just for burying the dead, became a place where Christians met undetected to worship and share the Eucharist. Inviting a neighbour, family member or friend to that Sunday gathering was far too dangerous. This circumstance created something very interesting. The people of God could not rely on a church experience as a strategy to introduce non-believers to Jesus. Think about that for a moment. You've got a friend who's showing some interest in Christianity. An easy next move might be to invite her to church where you hope she might encounter God in worship or at least be impressed by the good coffee, nice people and a TED talk for Jesus. Not in Rome. That strategy was well and truly off the table. Though rather than put the good news in the too hard basket, Christians of second century Rome took it up a level. Their evangelism had to be done in secret, but right out in public. The good news was not just something to be told, it was something to be lived. Yes, I understand and I agree that an integrated life always was and still is the only way. Yet for these believers, talking the talk but not walking the walk was not an option. They only had their public actions to be a witness for Christ. This meant every area of their life mattered. How they engaged in business and politics, their handling of money, their marriages, their relationships with family and friends, their role as an employee, in some cases a slave. All of it mattered. Demonstrating the way of Christ through their everyday lives was the strategy. 
Peter, who resided in Rome and was martyred there in 67 AD, exhorted his church in 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Here, good is translated from the Greek word kalos, which can be interchanged with honorable, virtuous, or beautiful. Peter is imploring Christians of his day and ours to live such beautiful lives in the midst of an unbelieving society that on the day God returns, they too would glorify Him. What a picture. What hope. What a challenge. This isn't an influencer's pleasingly curated Instagram kind of beautiful. This is a beautiful life where there are where no area is out of bounds for holy renovation by our Maker. It's where we let the Spirit weave His thread of integrity through us, that what we believe through His grace is what we come to live. This is the beauty that radiated from Jesus. Peter is calling us towards that kind of beautiful, congruent life. Again, what a hope and what a challenge. As we look back through the archives, there were some amazing witnesses with this good life that rose to the challenge in second century Rome. And we can plot their story as an influence in societal shifts. Let's take Callistus, for example. In Rome, the most vulnerable in society often had no rights or safety net. Infanticide was a common practice, widely accepted and free of stigma. A newborn, unwanted for any reason, could be left to die of exposure at places in the city that came to be known as exposure walls. If a child was fortunate, they would be picked up before they died by a slave owner or a pimp. Callistus, who himself was born a slave, had compassion on the abandoned infants and organised life watches that rescued infants and adopted them into Christian homes. In less than a century, infanticide went from a common and accepted social practice to punishable by law. Callistus can be credited as one of the catalysts for this change through living out the Christian ethic that all life matters to God and taking seriously the commandment to look after orphans from James 1.27. As inspiring as his story is, Rome wasn't changed in a day or by individuals that history remembers. In Alan Crider's book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, he argues that it was normal, everyday Christians whose public lives attracted outsiders to faith in Jesus. And it was the collective impact of generations of Christians living beautiful lives that contributed to more and more Romans accepting Jesus, including Emperor Constantine, who issued the Edict of Milan, which accepted Christianity in 313 AD, with Christianity becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire just 10 years later. In case you didn't catch that, Christians had attractive lives 
and it was their integrated, beautiful lives that moved Christianity and Rome from a cult to culture. Hearing the story of our ancient brothers and sisters, I feel encouraged that despite the odds the world would have given, Christianity grew in the most unlikely set of circumstances. It gives me motivation to pray for our fellow followers around the world today in Afghanistan, North Korea, China and beyond, who are currently experiencing devastating persecution for their belief in Jesus. It instills hope in me that despite what it looks like, Christ will continue to build his church through them and their witness. May they have the strength to stand. And coming back closer to home, this story highlighted some questions we can ask ourselves. As we hear many opinions from church leaders on what lockdowns mean for the gathered church, have we tied our own practice of faith, worship of God, or ability to witness exclusively to a form of church experience or program? I admit, I have. Over the past 18 months, I've been guilty of waiting for a fully-fledged Sunday gathering after lockdown to sing sung worship to God, or to wait to see a person face-to-face to encourage them in their faith, or be encouraged by them. Have you done something similar? I can almost hear the early church exhorting us, please don't do that. They're not telling us off, they are pleading. Because through all the change they experienced, they still knew the faithfulness of God to show up regardless of church form. They know very well that God never has and never will remove our ability to grow in intimacy with Him and love for others. Another question raised by this story is regarding our witness. While different methods of witnessing have had their moments and purpose, yes, street preaching of the 80s, I'm looking at you, an integrated, beautiful life has stood the test of time. As we saw with the early church, our everyday lives are the place where we either work for or against the kingdom of God. So the question begs to be asked, are there areas in our everyday lives we are not seeing as holy ground? Or perhaps, are there areas we have deemed out of bounds for renovation by our Maker? Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your new exciting relationship or your old tattered one. Maybe it's your singleness. Maybe it's your spending habits or hoarding habits. Maybe it's your social media consumption or your political activity. Maybe, and I hazard a guess that this could affect a few of us, it's our engagement with the intensifying debate around New Zealand's COVID-19 response. Do we see that area as holy ground? I humbly submit that even in this past week, there are new temptations and pressures that desperately need a witness of Christ. Because if we've been watching closely, the game has just changed. While it was collective action that reaped reward or restriction, it's shifted to individual choice that will see people rewarded or restricted. And people's choice is linked with two binary categories, vaccinated or unvaccinated. Perhaps it's this pressure of unavoidable personal categorization that is contributing 
to increasingly unhelpful, ungracious, unloving dialogue towards people who occupy the other category. I'm not sure, but it is well documented that pressure or stress has behavioural effects. Social withdrawal and aggression are common responses, as is increased pro-social behaviour towards in-group members. In layman's terms, we can become more tribalistic and more aggressive and withdrawn towards anyone outside our tribe. With these two categories comes a new temptation to assign people into two tribes. Might we counter this by remembering that though everyone's choice is binary, people are not. We all defy such a simple, reductive categorization. May we listen to Paul's charge in Romans 14.1 to welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. Even when it seems that they are strong on opinions but weak in the faith department, remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. Fresh from a series on the fruit of the Spirit, perhaps gentleness in the Delta debates is a timely space where we can be a witness of Christ in these coming weeks. Gentleness is a way we can show a good and beautiful witness amongst a moment of cultural pressure. Whether it's COVID responses or anything else in your life that is drawn to the surface for you today, Please know this, in the Trinity there is hope and there is power for our lives to become good and beautiful. The trustworthy renovation of God is still our goal, even without our church gatherings to attend. Central Vineyard, as we continue walking our lives, may we take inspiration from the Christians of 2nd century Rome and divine nourishment from our God to live a life of beauty that reflects Christ and builds His kingdom in Tamaki Makoto today. May you attend to a good and beautiful life. With love, Ella.